Copycat, let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 29th, 2016, the Fail to Prepare, Prepare to Fail edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson has just tumbled into the studio off a red eye. John Dickerson of Face the Nation. He, you faced the entire nation overnight, John. I faced, I, I, yeah, exactly. It was a bit of a bumpy nation, but uh, but we got here. Man, there's just no way to get, there's just no way to... Go anywhere. Yeah, no, just the, the like <laughs> trying to sleep in that, uh, in one of those chairs, it's just not, it wasn't happening. That right. other voice is, of course, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, who is, I'm guessing, New Haven. Yes. No, Brooklyn. You're in Brooklyn. You don't know. Yeah, Joss and I made a secret Brooklyn plan last night. Oh, my Joss God. It was so helpful because I really did not give her any Why are notice. you in Brooklyn? Are you pickling again today? I am doing some work in New York today. Thank you very much. If only I'd been able to go to Brooklyn because then the red eye, it would have been no sleep till Brooklyn. <laughs> is that a song? Oh, dear. I don't get that. What is that? It's a Beastie Boys song. Oh, I thought you were doing a last act. Don't be like, oh, dear. Don't <laughs> condescend to me. <laughs> we didn't know the Beastie Boys. I'm, well, I'm, I, I feel humiliated. I think, it was a piece, right. I think it was a piece of his growing up that it's that's missing. Oh, God, you condescending. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're going to be called out on non-music knowledge, not knowing the Beastie Boys is like a badge of honor. Did you know what it was, Emily? Did no, you get the I had reference? no idea. None. I thought he was talking about Last Exit from Brooklyn and like making some weird wordplay that didn't That's, work. I thought that too. That's what I thought. <laughs> and when you leave Brooklyn, it'll be motherless Brooklyn. Uh, All right. All right. Onward. On this, week's, <laughs> on this week's Gab Fest, <laughs> on this week's Gab Fest, the state of the race now that we have hurdled the first debate, how big a bounce will there be for Hillary Clinton after her apparent victory, her clear victory. Then we'll talk about whether Donald Trump should try to tar Hillary Clinton by talking about Bill Clinton's infidelities and generally loathsome behavior towards women. Then the huge spike in American murders in 2015, or was there a huge spike? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in this week's Slate Plus segment, as part of Slate's ongoing 20th anniversary celebrations. We head to the Political Gap Fest archives to nominate and discuss our favorite segments of all time. Last week, the folks that hang up and listen, the Culture Gap Fest and the Double X Gap Fest, also spent time digging through their archives and choosing highlights from their histories. And on Wednesday, Slate published a special podcast that features all four of those conversations. To listen to the full show and to get bonus segments on future episodes of the Political Gap Fest, join Slate Plus 
at slate.com slash gabfest plus and you can also get a 20 percent off deal on annual membership now because of the 20th anniversary celebration 35 dollars a year at slate.com slash gabfest plus and one more announcement which is that our live show in boston on october 26th at 7 30 p.m in the wilbur theater that's a wednesday there are still a few wilbur. tickets available i think you did, <laughs> did that, that joke last time? Week. i know i'm too tired to stop <laughs> Good Jocelyn just said that there is no Wilbur <laughs> in Charlotte's Web. No, she didn't. No, that particular voice. That particular voice is, is a Mr. Ed voice. Is a Mr. Ed voice. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wilbur. Uh. Wilbur. 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 Do you want to mention your favorite Wilbur no! politician, John? Just move on. Uh, no, I don't. Oh. <laughs> Is Who is it, my favorite? The, it's uh, no, it's Wilbur, the House Ways and Means Committee chairman. Oh, Wilbur Mills. Yeah. Wilbur Mills, Sorry. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. David knows me better than I know myself. Uh, anyway, <laughs> we're going to do a show October 26th, Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. You can go to slate.com slash no, slash live for tickets. Go to visit slate.com slash live for tickets. That's slate.com slash live for tickets to that show, which you should come to. We are now 60 hours or so past debate number one. Adrenaline levels have receded to usual. Uh, Democrats have stopped titrating the booze and weed to calm their nerves. In case you missed it, we did a very rapid day after debate podcast. You can check your feed for that. So we're not going to rehash our autopsy of what was a pretty comprehensive Hillary Clinton victory. Let us talk instead about what's happened since then and about what's coming next. So, Emily, there were some wonderful stories this week saying that (laughs) The Trump camp is trying to figure out how to get Donald Trump to prepare for the next debate. How can they get him to prepare for the next debate? Should they try to get him to prepare for the next debate? Will it work if they get him to prepare for the next debate? Actually, John, you'll take the will it work part. Okay. Maybe. Well, let's see. I'll I'll start with my favorite anecdote, which was that Roger Ailes tried to lead like debate camp and he had Trump had trouble focusing. He wasn't so interested, apparently, in like, I mean, forget briefing books. I think he just wasn't interested in briefing. And then, you know, Ailes a little distracted himself right now by uh, his um, leaving Fox and his sexual harassment accusation woes. So, yeah, I mean, look, I think Trump is going to figure out how to prepare differently. He knows that he did much better in the beginning of that debate than the rest of it. And he seemed like he did have a kind of initial line of attack. And so he needs to figure out how to extend that through the whole debate and not go off on the weird, growly, unhelpful tangents that he went off on. So I think he is going to be more disciplined the next time around. But I don't think they're going to succeed in like suddenly turning him into, you know, an Oxford debater. John, is he capable of preparing and holding his focus without drugs? He has not shown throughout the course of this campaign an ability to to stay fixed for very long. It's been the constant rhythm of the campaign that he'll be pure Trump and then somebody will come in and say, you have to, you know, moderate, mellow, temporize, do whatever. And then he stays in that position for a little while and then he breaks out again. Um, So I would have thought and, you know, remember my – I mean, it, w- it was so obvious what he needed to do in this debate. The temperament was <laughs> and his. And the bar was low. Yeah. And the temperament was the key question. And yet he couldn't do it. I was, I'm f- sort of floored because I w- it seemed like such an easy call to make, especially having watched what he did, which was he obviously, ha- as you said, did have that line of attack and, and did have some strategy about how to play 
offense. So how to if he was able to do that, how he was unable to do the unforced uh, stay away from the unforced errors is is confusing. I keep coming back to the fact that this is going to be a town hall debate in which the candidates have to interact with the voters. Hillary Clinton has been interacting with strangers since she did her, you know, home surveys for the Children's Defense Fund uh, in the in early the 70s. in the early seventies, she has been interacting as a politician with regular people um, her entire adult life. Donald Trump doesn't really on the campaign trail. It's not a part of his thing. He doesn't do the kind of little events, or he does them occasionally, but they're they're just so staged that. It's going to be fascinating to watch him interact with regular people. And I think that will make it difficult. That adds a a degree of difficulty and changes the context a little bit from what we saw in the first debate. He can be on message, but if you're on message and not answering a person's question as opposed to the moderator's question, I think there's a problem with that. One thing also, I talked to Frank Luntz, one thing that interested me was that his dial group that uh, showed Hillary Clinton doing so much better than Trump one of the first things they uh, registered was not just the interruptions of Hillary Clinton, but the, his interruptions of Lester Holt. People found that objectionable. And I thought that was interesting because, you know, mostly everybody thinks the media is terrible. And the fact that he was interrupting Lester Holt was a was an original or an initial knock against him, which he then only compounded. It's not just also the uh, emotional connection or psycho- psychic connection that you have to make with a voter in a town hall. There's also a a physical ballet, which is pretty hard. There's a physical motion that you have to walk and carry yourself in particular ways that it will be fun to watch Trump do because the way he moves through the world is so different from the way that a traditional politician does. And it's it could look really super weird. Wasn't there wasn't there one candidate who in one of these town halls didn't move off his chair? I feel like there was there was one of these where there was a candidate who sort of stuck in place and it was it was a weakness. I can't remember. I mean, George Herbert Walker Bush didn't didn't go roaming. Bill Clinton had set up a mock debate stage in his hotel down to the last detail, including where the cameras were going to be. And the stools that he used in practice ended up being the stools that were used in the actual debate because the debate commission called the campaign and said, hey, we're, we need some stools. And so they used the ones that Clinton had been using for practice. But you can see Clinton, if you go on YouTube and look at the conversation he has with the young African-American woman about how the debt has affected her, he, he knows where the cameras are and he knows how to have it in a two shot. So when he's talking, you can see her nodding and it's, you know, basically like the country's nodding to what he's saying. So that's something that'll be very much in play in that second debate. By the way, we have a vice presidential debate before that. So that, that'll be that should really thrill. determine the fate of the election. That's definitely what's so going to yeah. change my uh, mind. One thing that has happened since our analysis uh, in the postgame show is the two-day story of Trump's relationship with uh, Alicia Mikado, the Miss Universe, who he called Miss Piggy. And, and Miss Housekeeping. And Miss Housekeeping, and who he publicly forced to uh, work out in front of the cameras because she'd gained weight. He continues to defend his behavior, continues to say she was overweight. And Newt Gingrich joined in and said that, you know, when you're Miss Universe, you can't gain 60 pounds. This, and they're exaggerating to, apparently how much weight she right. gained too, yeah. let me just add. So what's fascinating is um, that this would be the thing that would live on 
I mean, we just, you know. Oh, ev- not just live on, but live on because Trump wants to keep talking about well, it. Well, right? that's, that's exactly that the amazing po- part of it. Exactly. And then that goes back to if we believe in this theory that we uh, should give a name by now, that um, what hurts you is when you go right at your existing weakness. This goes again to impulse control. I mean, he cannot, like, insulting a female Latina woman. Well, I guess that's redundant, but, um, like, don't do it. Don't attack Gold Star families. Don't attack the women about their weight. Women about their weight. Like, obvious thing. Don't do it. And yet, it continues on. Did you guys watch the Fox and Friends segment where he called in the morning after the debate? It's so surreal because he's not there in the studio. And so these incredibly cruel words are coming across as audio. And you're looking at these three hosts and they just look really like depressed that they're having to listen to this. There's nothing that kind of relieves the tension because you don't have Trump's body language and his like distraction. It it really is. It was a Like, very interesting one-minute segment of television to me. So revealing. Emily, I just want to go back to the basic takeaway from the first debate, which is that if you're a president, you deal with hard questions. You need to think about questions. You need to be attentive to the world and make a hard decision based on a lot of data that you've gathered and have taken it. Hillary Clinton is obviously prepared for that. She proved that in the debate. Donald Trump obviously has no interest in it. Is not prepared for that. What more do we need to know about who's fit to be president? Honestly, I don't understand why this wasn't just kind of game, set, and match. This person is not prepared to be president, and we can just call it now. I couldn't be more in agreement. I mean, the presidency requires you to do compulsory things that you may not like. And one of the things that we should look for in candidates is whether when there's a compulsory activity, they put in the basic amount of effort required to participate in that activity. A debate is not just compulsory. It's the highest stakes thing for which you have to do some amount of preparation. And he didn't do that. And why is that important? All the reasons that are obvious. But secondarily, he Donald Trump has said repeatedly that on any issue, including national security, domestic affairs, that once he puts his mind to it through a little quick study, he will know more and be more up to speed than any of the experts who have devoted their lives to any of the topics on the long list of topics a president must face. So this is not just a failure of normal campaigning. This is a failure of his key promise about himself, that he is such a quick study that he can perform brilliantly in, and this was a test of that, and he totally failed. And yet, I think there are a couple reasons why this isn't game, set, and match. One is this trope, which I keep hearing, that we have two terrible candidates. So, like, what's the point? I mean, Colin Kaepernick is saying that this week following the debate. Someone I was seeing as a hero for, you know, his protest actions of not standing for um, the national anthem at football games. So that's my first response to this. And then the second one is I don't think Hillary in the debate had an effective rejoinder for Trump saying, you've been in government for 30 years. Why haven't you done something about this already? Like, why should we trust you when we still have all these problems? I think she needs to defend her own public service and government and say, like, 
I mean, whatever. We can all script our answers for her. That's probably really not helpful and kind of presumptuous. But I I think there has to be some affirmative idea of like, look, being a novice is not necessarily so great. And having experience at this has benefits. Also, how has she been in government for 30 years? She's been in government for 10 or 15 (laughs) years. And if you want to attribute the Clinton presidency to her, then that's a great thing for her. Because that was a time of prosperity and growth and and great national triumph, generally. Right, except when she tried to say that during the free trade part of the debate, it kind of backfired on her. It's fairly shocking to me that the Republican electorate has joined around Trump at the no- in the numbers they've joined around him. It's still 90% of Republicans expect to support him, which is insane. Yeah. I'm not expecting them to vote for Hillary, but why – has there not been more defection, John? Yeah, we'll see actually a week in whether there starts to be some defection. I think partially it's that they really, really don't like Hillary Clinton. Yes. And but how could any honest patriot feel that it would be better for the country to have Donald Trump elected president than Hillary Clinton well, elected I think, president? I, I don't think, think that's a thing that an honest person can really say. Well, I think that before the debate, for those who want to change the idea that he was dangerous change, that he was so ill-prepared that it would cause calamity, had slipped out of the front of the mind. I think secondarily, when 17% of the people, and I think that's the number, think the government is effective, they're not that worried about putting, you know, like they don't think there's that much at risk. It's already a mess. And so like, you know, why not Take a stab at it. 19% trust government. Big risk, big reward. And also there's alternative universe. I mean, so there, you know, the polling shows people think like, oh, yeah, he doesn't know of this or that. But who cares? Like, he'll get good people. He'll listen to his advisors. And, you know, he has this winning instinct and he's fighting for me. And I nobody ever comes and makes the case to me that they're going to fight for me the way he does. And I like that. And the rest of it is all just, you know, BS that the elites care about. And he can hire elites and it'll be fine. So, Do you think the alternative universe has an alternative Miss Universe who doesn't gain weight? <laughs> that was very good. Mm. Emily, uh, do you think that Trump knows that he did badly or believes that he did badly? He did apparently acknowledge that he did better in the beginning than through the rest of it. But no, I mean, oh, well, I'm like deep in his heart. Oh, God, I'm not going to try to figure out what's deep in his heart. But he is going around with total, what's his word? Well, he didn't say braggadocio. He said another. Braggadocious. Braggadocious. Yeah. No, braggadocious was his word. That's a kind of awesome word. Yeah. He's been totally braggadocious. He's been citing these completely, you know, bogus instapoles. He's been saying, everyone's telling me I did so great. I did great. I mean, yeah. No, I don't think there is a rec- – I don't think his ability to recognize a failure like that. And that's another thing we might want to think about before we uh, pull the lever for him in the ballot booth. And John, what does the data say? What do the data say so far about the effect on the race? I don't think there's – we don't really know enough yet. You know, I think we give it a week. Presumably Clinton's – favorables will go uh, sorry enthusiasm will go up for her they make the claim at the clinton campaign that enthusiasm doesn't track to vote intent in other words they'll go people will go vote they just won't be excited about it i think there were some of those moments as we mentioned on the on the post game analysis there were moments that can be passed around in democratic circles that will be rallying points for her go team moments he what's amazing too is there's not there is not, not a single moment from the debate that he can clip and send around to his supporters which is really striking 
John, one last point. Is there any news about the ground game? Is there any evidence that Republicans are going to be prepared to turn out these Trump voters in ways that are unexpected? Because one of the things I think that Hillary Clinton has been counting on is that the polls are the polls. And even though they're showing a tightening, that we are such a better organized machine and better operation that we're going to get our voters out and the, the Republicans are not. Is there any sense that that uh, narrative has shifted? At all? I can't find any evidence that uh, I mean, the Trump team was late getting their ground game going. I can't find any evidence that they're even in the same league as the Clinton team. But what we do know is that Trump and his core supporters are just mad for him in a way that just the core of Clinton supporters are not. What one possible scenario is that he he maximizes his base vote like crazy, you know, without doing much work. And Clinton has to work like crazy to achieve a similar effect in her base. So her ground game, the Democratic ground game is a lot better and it needs to be. Although that suggests that his base is big enough to sweep him to victory. And no. I guess that could be. No, it doesn't. Well, no, no, no. I, no, I, I don't think it isn't. No, he's got to add to his base. But mobilization is about is largely about your base and your likely yep. voters. And then the question is, what happens to the rest of the of the people who are sloshing around? Do they not vote? Do they do they vote for Gary Johnson, even well, though he Gary can't Johnson, name a single foreign leader in the world? Yeah, one. Well, that's the, the, the somebody. Uh, one of the wonderful correspondents in my undecided group that I called out for several weeks ago, and and lots and lots of wonderful people have written me. One of them wrote and said, "You know, I'm just I've stopped my flirtation with Gary Johnson. Like he just not he's not." And that was even before this world leader thing. So this person who has voted for Republicans is going to vote for Hillary. Emily, who's your favorite world leader? Quick, quick, quick. Ten, nine, eight, <laughs> seven, Angela six, Merkel. five. I had to figure it out last night when Mike. You knew you I was going to ask you. You that. mean Angela no, Merkel? We did it. At, thank yeah. you. you mean Angela Merkel? <laughs> I, like, I, thought, I thought she was saying she's like, Latino, <laughs> she leads Latin Germany. What did you say, Don? Angela Merkel? Angela Merkel. It's not yeah. Angela. <laughs> I said it wrong last night, and my sons corrected me, and I still said it wrong. Yeah, that's my answer. Name another. Another one that I like Justin Trudeau. I thought that was going to come. That was tr- that, those, what I about you? Be... Name a third and a fourth one, David Plotz. N- uh, that I like? Yes. Uh, Xi Jinping of China. I like I like China. Okay. <laughs> sure, you are a fan of China. It's true. Keep uh, going. One uh, more. Uh, let's see. I'm sure there's an awesome prime minister of Denmark. I saw Borgen. I saw Borgen. What's her Nyborg. name? Nyborg. Nyborg. Yes. <laughs> okay, the television show version. Um, all right. Let's all right, uh, let's move on. <laughs> I, that was, I enjoyed that tremendously. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia and identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. One of the strangest elements of the post-debate Donald Trump tour is people congratulating him over and over again and him congratulating himself over and over again for his restraint 
in not attacking Hillary Clinton over Bill Clinton's infidelities. His son, Eric, said <laughs> quite wonderfully, I thought, <laughs> I that it took, it took courage for his dad not to attack her. Uh, Donald Trump has said that he f- it would be inappropriate for do it. It would not be nice. So it was this, this strange spectacle of Trump debating in public whether or not to use this line of attack, which is effectively using the line of attack. But also and it was trying all about Chelsea. He looked at a Chelsea in the audience and he couldn't do it to her. Uh, so they're going to use it, right, Emily? They're going to find a way to directly use this in one of these debates. He will find a way to directly use it, right? I guess so, although now he's gone on about how wonderful he is for not doing it. I mean, I, to hold him accountable for an apparent contradiction is, I realize, a little silly at this point. But there is a, a kind of paradox there. I guess he's going to bring it in. I'm still not sure it's a good idea for him politically. But I suppose the line of attack is this idea that Hillary was an enabler of Clinton's affairs or even of his alleged sexual assaults. That's the way to go at it. Uh, I just, I don't know. The is there, John? Do you have a sense of whether there's really any evidence of that, and or or does is evidence that of also what? Evidence that of she enabling? enabled anything? Yeah. Do we have any evidence of that to start with? I know that's not really a Trumpian question, but well, certainly there's accusation by accusations by Juanita Broderick and Kathleen Willey, and but but a lot of it the is the Juanita Broderick accusation is very sparse right. against Hillary. Thin it's that Hillary thin. said, yeah. "Thank yeah. you for your support." Right, somewhere exactly. Um, yeah. First of all. What are you, 12? Like, well, I was going to say it, but I didn't. I mean, come on. That's and then for, that's just not. This is the presidency of the United States. This is a debate where 100 million people are, are tuning in. Like, if you're either do it or don't do it. But this, this is not like. What's the gain he gets except some id motivated, dark, joyous horror of it? I don't. Well, the gain he gets understand. is if you, if you look back at what Bill Clinton did, uh, what, how he sidetracked the country in this. And what he did basically to Hillary Clinton by telling her and having her go on the Today Show and say there's nothing to this, it's terrible. It's awful. It's awful to the country. It's awful to his wife. It's awful to his family. Like, you want to go through all that again? I think that's totally fair game. But either man up and do it or be quiet about it. No, like not, this, so why not, is it fair game not, when it's Not that it's Hillary not fair Clinton. game, but oh. why is it a good move? She is oh, prepped and prepped and prepped and she has a kill shot think, waiting yeah, for yeah, yeah, it. I don't know I what don't the kill shot is. Good, I don't think it's a good move at all. I think it's. I think you're exactly right. I think Hillary Clinton can say, I mean, it would be, it's, it doesn't even take much art to think about what the response is, which is, you know, you want to make this, you want to talk about this? Well, we, like many marriages, went through tough tough times, and we stuck together through prayer and hard work and dedication to values in our family, and we are proud that we've been able to weather all of the troubles we've been through, and, you know, I mean— And meanwhile, the media can trot out Donald Trump's, you know, affairs and his multiple marriages, exactly. et cetera. Exactly. But, and, but I which, am by not the way, sure it's know. bad politics. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Because if this— if the whole game is to just tear down Hillary Clinton and make people feel like these are both tarnished people who, you know, you don't want to have as your president, it's effective. It, it reminds us of, like, the bad Clinton stuff that you were just talking about, and it just sort but, of wraps her up in that. Well, but Emily, isn't the counter to that that every time this has been raised that public yeah. sympathy for Hillary Clinton rises? Yes. That's and it doesn't that. actually tar her. It does right. tar her husband, who is— increasingly in retrospect, does appear to, to be a sexual predator of some sort. But Well, let's – OK. We don't know that that's true. Let's just – But there's it. no – there is no reason we should hold her at all accountable for that. So it seems to me 
if you're going to do this, it's a really hard thing to do because you're on a debate stage. Like a debate stage is not like the Howard Stern show. Secondly, with the faces of the public there, you know, in the in the town hall format, you say something you because this attack has to be repeated. Right. So because Hillary Clinton will have the one response and then he'll have to keep coming at it. You get a cutaway shot to some horrified voter as you're prosecuting this. That's not good. It's also just hard to to attack in those instances and come off. You have to have a kind of a light touch or you have to, I mean, having had some familiarity with pressing questions and issues again and again and again, you lose people who are like, why are you like, why are you, why do you keep like talking about this? So I think it's, it's whether it's smart or not is one thing. And then whether one can pull it off is, is quite another, uh, I think there's a high degree of difficulty. Trump might be hoping that an audience member somehow raises it, that that might be a way for him to him not to be responsible for it. Yeah. That's a good idea. I was also thinking he already raised it. Like we've had this whole another round of news coverage about this. I don't know if it played out well for him or not, but he certainly got the spotlight back on it. But he didn't get the satisfaction, which you know he wants. You know he longs to say this. You know that he is just – he wants to utter these words in public and he doesn't want to just pussyfoot around about it. And I think he won't be – because he has no impulse control – he will not be able to control himself. At one of these debates, he will say something and it will be fantastically interesting. Right. And then he'll always have had that, right? He'll always get the praise for having done that. And this also goes to my deep suspicion that he is deeply ambivalent about wanting to be president in the first place. And maybe he'd rather have that moment of satisfaction than be president. He'd rather have that moment of satisfaction of saying something? Yeah, like maybe this is, you know, then for his whole life, people who hate Hillary Clinton and hate the Clintons will toast him and congratulate him for calling him on this. And like maybe that's how he kind of goes out and also lets himself off the hook of actually doing the hard work of being in the White House, which just seems pretty hard to imagine. I just think the evidence that he'll raise it is that he's a person who in everything we know about him is that he's unable to stop himself from doing the things that he wants to do. He literally does not have any control over any impulse control and therefore he will he will definitely raise it all right we made a prediction that's kind of dangerous now uh we'll have to see what happens and it's kind of a short-term prediction <laughs> we're either gonna be right or wrong in the next month we'll have to revisit this do you think she actually wants oh yeah. to have this happen I, or I, not that's a really interesting question I, I except for the total unpredictability of him and what it would do to you know i don't know her daughter granddaughter like granddaughter watching youtube clips of a uh, big ugly oh thing that granddaughter has all these problems already yeah that's true i know but uh i don't know it's a really interesting question david i'm gonna say no because i just think there's something so private and painful about this and yeah. it just i just think no i mean i'm sure she'll be steeled for it and she'll handle it and i think it's it's yeah it's really hard Life is complicated, and I wonder what people in their own lives think about this. I mean, obviously, there's certain people who think like Bill Clinton's awful and the way they handled the. So maybe they won't. Maybe they won't right, reflect I mean, on their maybe, own personal experience. Well, isn't that the question? Is that sometimes politicians generally, and I think this is true of Hillary Clinton, we stop thinking of them as human beings. She's been caricatured and punching bagged and pillarized so much, and if. That moment makes her a human being and people do think about their own relationships yep. and those of the people around them. Yep. That's that will be huge. That's an excellent point. That is an excellent point. I can't think of a single person that I know that would think worse of her 
for this being raised. That's not to say there aren't such people. It's just that in the world that I live in, I just I, even even people who think worse of Bill Clinton, I my view of Bill Clinton has gotten worse and worse and worse and darker and darker and darker over time. Me but too. relating to this, but it has no effect at all on how I think about Hillary Clinton. Uh, okay, let's stop there. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. On Monday, the FBI released 2015 crime statistics, which were perhaps ugly or perhaps not, depending on your point of view. According to the FBI, homicides spiked nearly 11% between 2014 and 2015, which is the highest percentage hike in almost 50 years. Violent crime rose 4% nationally. In the half-full, half-empty school of statistics, it is also true that crime declined overall and that despite the 1,500 additional homicides in 2015, Murder rates generally have plunged in the United States over the past 20 years. This was, I think, the third lowest year for violent crime and homicides in since they've been measuring, or at least in this last uh, period. So, Emily, first of all, did I get the statistics right or was I wrong? Because I think you were huffing and puffing there and are about to correct me. No, I mean, murder rose. Murder rose by almost 11 percent, and that's a big deal. And there were also was a 4% rise in other kinds of violent crimes. It's also true that property crime like burglar and larceny went down slightly. And the other point that criminal justice reform advocates have been emphasizing is that a lot of the increase in murders in is in uh, several big cities. So it's not a phenomenon that most people are experiencing across the country. It's fairly concentrated. There are seven cities, according to The New York Times, that half of the increase in killings came in. That's Baltimore, Chicago, Cleveland, Houston, Milwaukee, Nashville, and Washington, D.C., And then we also increasingly see that murder is concentrated in particular neighborhoods and even on particular blocks. And that's all scary and can make it, um, you know, dangerous to live in certain places in this country. But it's not the same thing as a sort of national crime wave. And the reason that criminal justice reform advocates care about pointing that out is that fear of rising crime contributed enormously to the rise of incarceration in in the 80s onward. And so there's a lot of concern that if people think crime is rising and they exaggerate the risk that they personally experience, then there'll be another surge in punishment. I should note before we go any further that John had to step out for the segment. So this is just going to be me and Emily. That's why you're about to not hear John's voice. The statistic that really stood out for me, Emily, in this was not only is this concentrated in seven cities, not only is it concentrated in particular areas of those seven cities, it is that 60% of the additional murders were of black men, that 900 more black males were killed in 2015 than 2014. So of the 1,500 additional uh, murdered, most of them were black males, which is a which is fairly shocking when you consider that black males are probably 4% of the population overall or 5% of the population. Right. So we're seeing an increase in 
gun homicides. They were used in nearly three quarters of the murders in 2015 among black men. And then I think you have to say, and you're seeing this in particular social networks. There's a sociologist at Yale named um, Alex Papakristos who has done some really interesting research on this. And it's concentrated. And it's not even just that, like, Lots of people have guns and then those guns go off. It's that, yes, it's true. The rate of gun possession tends to be higher in urban black neighborhoods that have high homicides rates. But the actual violent crime is perpetrated by a small number of people in those places. There are a small number of people who are making those places dangerous. So what are the other explanations? So there's more guns. There is a theory that there are more uh the gang violence has become fragmented and more chaotic because there were certain almost less violent, more organized gangs, which have been broken up and have been replaced by smaller, fragmented and more chaotic gangs that the opioid addiction and the market created by the opioid addiction has made violence easier or perhaps made violence a more lucrative part of your business. There's the theory that there are more young people just the size of the generational cohort makes uh, an increase in violence possible. Which of those theories or others have gripped you? I mean, I'm not ready for a theory yet, because when you look, when you step back and you look at the, you know, murder rate or the violent crime rate over time, this is a very small uptick after an enormous drop. So, you know, we're still 2015 was like the safest year on record since the 70s, except for like 2014, 2013, 2012. I mean, the number, the graph just shows this little uptick at the end. And if it goes back down, then we're going to look at this year and say, huh, and yeah, maybe there's some issues that these particular cities need to look at in the way they're policing or the way their, you know, anti-poverty programs aren't working. I mean, you could posit a lot of theories, but I don't think we have any kind of national coherent picture yet. And, you know, of course, we should bring up that one of the controversial explanations for this rise is the so-called Ferguson effect, the idea that because of the protests and urgency of the Black Lives Matter movement that the police have stepped back. They're not preventing crime as they should and used to because they feel like their hands are tied by protesters. I don't subscribe to this explanation. I think it's being bandied about without any real evidence. But, you know, over time, researchers can go in and they can do the kind of more sophisticated work that would actually test this as opposed to, you know, FBI Director James Comey saying, like, I talked to a bunch of cops who said that to me. Why are conservatives who are typically so eager to pin problems in the country on the president and on Democratic mayors, perhaps, but there are conservative justice reformers who do not want to make a big deal out of, out of this crime rise? I, I'm still a little bit puzzled. I know you started an explanation of that a minute ago, Emily, but can you dig into it? Why would Grover Norquist and others not want to puff this up too much? Well, you're really talking about a coalition of different conservatives. There's an organization called Right on Crime, and then there's a kind of Right on Crime movement, and it has some different parts to it. So one part of it is religious conservatives, uh, the Prison Fellowship, which was started by Charles Colson before he died. A Wall Street, um, a, excuse me, a Watergate crook who went to prison and had a a real conversion experience there and yeah, spent the rest of his a, life uh, attempting to rehabilitate prisoners and and bring religion to prison and also soften how we treat prisoners. 
Yeah, I'm going to bungle this, but there's isn't there a saying like a liberal, a conservative is a liberal who got mugged or, oh, shoot. Yes, a conservative totally, is yeah. a liberal who was mugged and a liberal is a conservative who's been to prison. Exactly. But okay. Charles Colson didn't really end up as a liberal. He did end up more liberal on prisoner rights issues, though. Right. And that's what's, I think, telling that some religious conservatives have really been emphasizing redemption, this idea that people deserve a second chance in working with prisoners. Then there are libertarians who see over-incarceration as an example of the government going too far and, you know, being up in our business uh, as an example, really, of over-regulation. There are more criminal statutes, a kind of you know, this idea that, like, everybody commits crimes multiple times in the year, if not in the day, and that, you know, we could all be in prison if we truly enforced all these overabundant laws we have. And then there are people who are legitimately concerned about cost. I mean— Keeping people in prison and jail and just the cost of the criminal justice system became a real budgetary factor for a number of states in the last, say, decade, 15 years. And so you see states like Texas saying, you know what, we built all these prisons, we're not going to build anymore. We need to figure out how to reduce sentences, how to do a better job of helping people when they get out so they don't come back, as opposed to just this, you know, previous very hands-off attitude that a lot of states had of like, well, if you're on probation, you know, good luck to you. You're on parole. Like, I hope it works out for you. Oh, you can't get a job. That's too bad. And so, you know, these re-entry programs, as they're called, are efforts to try to help people. And they really do have bipartisan support. Why do you think it is that Donald Trump, who is in no sense a right-on-crime criminal justice reformer, did not make more hay of these data in the debate, we were just discussing a minute ago. I actually thought these data came out after the debate because <laughs> he had done so little with it. Why is he not making this an anchor of his campaign? I mean, gee, do you think maybe he just hadn't read the report? Like, didn't know? I... It is sort of shocking that he whiffed on such a great opportunity to raise it. Leah Nafak did a really good piece in Slate in which he was talking about how much he was wrestling with the numbers, trying to make sure to accurately present them. You know, you don't want to, like, massage them or minimize them in some way that's inaccurate. And the fact that all these additional people are being killed is terrible. But he also didn't want to, you know, kind of get it wrong or theorize too quickly. And he really ended his piece by saying, you know what, maybe there isn't one coherent national story to tell right now about these figures. And I think that's right. Well, two final points stand on one. Most of the crime stats folks seem to be saying these are not great figures around homicide, but let's wait a couple of years and see if this trend continues and whether this means more than just one year's bump or whether it is a, an actual trend because one year does not a trend make. The other point is regardless of whether the nation as a whole is experiencing a, a spike in homicides, Chicago is insane. There have been more homicides in Chicago this year as of September than there were in all of 2015. And 2015 was a huge spike from 2014. It's astonishing. What is what's going on there? Well, so a couple of things about Chicago, and I am not a big expert on Chicago, but here are a couple of points. One is if you take a map of Chicago and you look at the homicides and then you overlay onto it housing segregation patterns, and then you overlay exposure to lead paint, you get basically the same map each time. It's a little eerie. 
So again, we are talking about concentrated crime in particular neighborhoods as a response to poverty and perhaps other neurological factors when you think about the lead paint part. I mean, lead paint has been for a while posited as a theory contributing to previous bigger rises in crime in the United States. So that's one thing to say about Chicago. Another thing is that the Chicago police have a low clearance rate for murders and a really low rate for other for gun crimes that in which someone don't get, doesn't get killed. And so what that means is they're just not solving these crimes. They're not catching the murderers and putting them in prison. And that has contributed to a real erosion of trust in Chicago between um, urban black communities and the police. There also, I was reading the other day about how in the precincts in Chicago with the highest gun crime rates, the cops tend to be the less experienced cops, which seems like not a good idea. So Chicago is a place where the city government and the police really have not solved the problem of how to make certain streets safe. And inevitably, we're going to see more and more, I think, comparisons between Chicago and Los Angeles and New York, places where the murder rate and the violent crime rates really have dropped and competing explanations about what's going on there that's made it better. All right, let's leave it there. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're doing whatever it is you do before you have cocktails at the Dickerson Mance. John, what will you be chattering about? In 1938, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a book, uh, wrote a um, <clears throat> novel, his only complete novel, it turns out, called The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of oh, Nantucket. Not 1938, 1838. 1838, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm laughing at David, not you. No, no. Of course, David, like, immediately knew that. He's listening. I but read I think, that at some point. Uh, it's a weird book. It is a weird book. It's um, basically there's a mutiny and um, uh, basically a bunch of the crew is killed. They kill the mutineers except for a guy named Richard Parker who the good guys need to keep alive to control the ship. Anyway, there's a terrible storm. The three survivors plus mutineer Richard Parker end up in a lifeboat. In the lifeboat, they uh, come to David's favorite moment where they run out of food and they have to decide which one of them to eat. They draw straws and Parker, the poor mutineer Richard Parker, loses and ends up with the shortest straw and the fellows eat him. So then 46 years later, four fellows traveling from England to Australia were on a yacht. Well, along with a bunch of other people, which was taken out by a huge, huge wave. Four of them found themselves in the lifeboat. They had some turnips. They ate the turnips. They basically then ran out of rainwater, drank their own urine. One cabin boy ended up drinking, big mistake, ended up drinking seawater, made him sick. He slipped into a coma while he was unconscious. The other three were like, okay, we're hungry. The uh, poor kid in the coma, short straw, they Carved him up. You know what the kid's name was? Arthur Gordon Pym? Nope. Richard Parker, yeah. the name of the guy who was eaten wow. in the Edgar Allan Poe story. And then um, yeah. this led to a really interesting trial in 
which I don't understand how they did this, but anyway, it's called R.V. Dudley and Stevens. And Dudley and Stevens, of course, are the, yeah. are the diners. Basically, there was a law, a, a law of the sea, which said basically like, Oh, yeah, this is famous. We read this in law school. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so it basically says, you know, when the circumstances are tricky, like you can do whatever you have yeah. to do. They lost, Necessity. were put in jail for like six months, but then it was reversed. So they, uh, yeah. because public, there was a public outcry. If we were in a lifeboat, you, me, and Emily, oh. how would we decide? <laughs> how would we decide? Yeah. <laughs> I think I'd probably just give up for the- uh, Really? You think so? How also, how does one know how to go about the culinary, you know, wheres and why fors of how to preparation? Like, I think if you're well, on a well, they're not you just cooking. have to salt everything. Well, they're not There's cooking, no but, choice. You, but you don't have a, right. But I mean, where do you begin? I mean, a leg, right? A leg, probably. Leg. Yeah. I just want to say that I would feel totally safe with you guys in a lifeboat because you are deeply empathetic, humane people and you would not eat me. I feel sure. <laughs> I think you'd be. I think it, you would have a good shot, Emily, because it would be. Yeah. It's sort of a two against one. So me and John, one of it's clear like one of us has to has to give it up. The lady, we can't eat the lady. <laughs> that would be. I don't that would think be anyone's eating anyone. I think the gap fest goes down together. I do not think we are eating each other. Also, I just don't get on boats, so <laughs> there's, not, there's very little danger yes. that's going to happen. <laughs> Emily, what's your Arthur Gordon Pym chatter? Linda Greenhouse sent me a lovely story by Tony Morrow, um, an excellent Supreme Court correspondent, about how it came to be that the Supreme Court is essentially these days recognizing the Jewish holidays. Next Monday, October 3rd, is the first day of the term because there's a 1916 law that says that the first Monday of October is that day. But the Supreme Court is not holding arguments. They're just like doing a little swearing in so that they don't run afoul of the law. And that's it. And they have canceled things entirely on Yom Kippur. So how did this come about? It seems that, according to Tony's reporting, in 94, after Justice Breyer joined the court and Ruth Bader Ginsburg had been there for a year, Yom Kippur also was in October in that year. And there were supposed to be arguments. And someone pointed this out, I guess probably Breyer pointed this out to Chief Justice Rehnquist and said, like, do you think you can do something about this? And at first, apparently, Rehnquist was not terribly sympathetic, saying that the justices could just listen to audio tapes of the arguments if they couldn't come to work that day. And apparently, Ginsburg and Breyer weren't so excited about that answer. Then it turned out that it just happened to be that Rehnquist himself was supposed to have back surgery on that day so of Yom Kippur in 1994. And so they ended up canceling arguments. And then in 2009, when some of Rehnquist's papers were made public, it turned out that there's a little note from Justice Ginsburg to him a few months later. And it says, Dear Chief, just to say you are a mensch, Yiddish for fine human, and hope you do not regard me as too much of a kvetch. And so it seems like maybe that's related to Chief Justice Rehnquist's decision to let the Jewish holidays be essentially a holiday at the Supreme Court. And I love that story, I think mostly because I've always struggled with how to deal with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur if you're like a basically secular Jewish person and you essentially are living in a Christian country, a mostly non-Jewish place in which many things continue and I suppose have to continue during the Jewish holidays because there just aren't that many Jews in the country. 
but it's always tricky. And so when institutions figure out how to um, honor the Jewish holidays, I feel grateful, even though I realize that proportionally Jews shouldn't necessarily feel entitled to that holiday. Yeah, I do, I, I do not think that's a good thing. I don't see why that's a good thing. Why all these other people who who plan their lives and the 98 percent of people who aren't American Jews should be inconvenienced by that. That does not seem to me a good decision. If the U.S. government wants to make Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah official holidays, they should go ahead and do it. But to sort of carve out days where the productivity of the country isn't happening because there's a some Jews who don't want it to happen does not seem to me a, a, a righteous or smart decision. It seems to me so totally then, wrong. Yeah. I mean, I, I recognize the rationality of what you're saying, but I just have this strong memory. In childhood, I stayed home from school on these days. And I remember both of my grandmothers scolding me for it because, you know, they were of a generation of Jews who cared so much about assimilating the notion that their granddaughter would like voluntarily choose to do something different. But I guess this is consistent because well, well, I'm sure you're not saying that I have to work that day. You don't have to work, but you have to bear the consequence that you're not working. Yeah, I guess so. Well, anyway, thank you, Chief Justice Rehnquist. <laughs> it seems to me just totally wrong. It's a hundred. They, they don't <laughs> even do. They don't going. do any. They don't do work. They, those guys. This, like, are we experiencing chatter pushback? <laughs> well, it's it's, it's revealing my self hating Jewishness. David's apparently, really grumbling this, about this, this cocktail Keep party going. has gone to hell. <laughs> I don't know why everyone gets so pleased like when they're when their particular uh, uh, their particular way of inconveniencing the world is acknowledged. They should acknowledge that they are messing up all these other people. I, I do. Anyway, enough said. Enough said. <laughs> I'm going to let that pass. OK. My chatter is about a book I read about. I have not read. I read about in I think The Guardian this week. It's a book that the English title is Blitzed, a great title. And it's by a German writer named Norman Oler. And it's about how everyone in the Third Reich was addicted to drugs, that Hitler was a crazy methamphetamine addict, also possibly oxy uh, or early forms of oxy. He had a doctor who was just feeding him tons and tons of drugs. Throughout the Third Reich, there was a huge push for people to get on drugs, especially amphetamines and methamphetamines. The Blitz, the Blitzkrieg attacks on Belgium and France succeeded in part because they hopped up all the soldiers yeah. on on these drugs. So they were able to stay awake for three days when they so, which didn't allow the French and Belgians any time to recover. There were these other experiments where they sent these one man U-boats into England and they but they required uh, the sailors in them, the one person in it, to stay up for seven days straight. So these guys were put on some other form of insane drug. It's a really interesting story about what happens when a whole nation gets on drugs. So Blitzed by Norman Oler. Our interns, Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. Gabfest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out our entire roster at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash Gabfest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash Gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Gabfest. And our email address is Gabfest at Slate.com. Subscribe in iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. Uh, you can search for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store. Also, come to our Boston show in October, Slate.com slash live for tickets for that. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. I'll talk to you next week. 
after Rosh Hashanah.